Hello everyone and welcome to the Morning Shot Uncut Podcast, live on Substack and Apple Podcasts. If you really like the show, why not subscribe to us and become a paid member on Substack? You get a video of this podcast and every single podcast every week from Morning Shot Uncut. With me, of course, is Byron, who's unfortunately stuck in a hellhole in exile on Mud Island. That must be fun, isn't it, Byron? Yes, I'm currently in the United Kingdom and my god, it's cold. Been here for a couple of weeks on this list, but shit, it's cold, man. Like proper cold, like cold, cold. Well, here in South Africa, we have beautiful summer weather, but no electricity. I think we're better off. Yeah, we 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 have electricity, but it costs you a bloody fortune. It's costing me about I don't know thirty pound a day to to heat a house, but six hundred rand a day to heat a house, man. Yeah, not worthwhile. Not worthwhile. But anyway, you are there. Seems like you have much of a choice because it's bloody cold. That's fair enough. And here we just, you know, have a wood fire stove and stuff, like back in the old days. The civilization has declined I'll, dramatically I'll do since we've do that, yeah. As you what? As you see in Clarkson's farm, you probably need a probably need a permit. Have you got a license for that? That's true. Civilization has declined though since we got rid of those wood fired stoves for the kitchens. You know, where you could keep the fire going for years, really. Uh, it's a very good and efficient way to, to heat stuff up and cook food, of course. But if we're not here to talk about culinary expertise, we're here to talk about South Africa. And the big news story of the week was, well, basically, Cyril's diddy-dallying over the cabinet reshuffle. Cabinet reshuffle. And we know why he's diddy-dallying. It's not because he has a cold or he has AIDS or something. It's because, well, the deputy president post is the most important post that needs filling. And it's not certain whether Cyril wants Paul Mashatile to be the deputy president of the country. He is deputy president of the ANC. But the problem for Cyril is, if Cyril goes, Paul Mashatile comes in as president. And who knows then what might happen if that particularly happens. So... We're going to talk about Paul Mashatide, why it might be an issue if he becomes deputy president. And we'll start off with the fact that, well, I mean, the man's just a gangster. Let's be honest. Yeah. He's a gangster. But I think the, the, current, the current narrative pushed forward is that the ANC and the EFF are more likely to go into a coalition with Paul Mashatide as deputy president. And obviously, if he takes over presidency, the idea then being Julius Malima becomes deputy president and... Off they go into the merry sunset. So where did that narrative originate from? Well, I'm sure it comes as zero surprise. It actually comes from the EFF themselves, because the EFF said they would much rather Paul Mashatile being the deputy president or the president of the country than Sir Ramaphosa. Noticeably, because Julia said Paul Mashatile is a weak man, and we can bully a weak man. So the narrative itself of where did that start from? DFF, DFF planted that, that seed. They, they created that kind of rumor. I suppose the first question that I have is, that may be the case, but what would it mean for the alliance partners, Kasatu, um, the commies, South African Communist Party? Would they see that as a positive? Would they not want their own people in those portfolios? Now, the problem is, and this is why I think a lot of people forget, that the government ministerial positions are just a graft. They're just... They're just there for, for money made. They're not there to actually do those functions. They're there for the mullah. So obviously if they if you take those roles and those portfolios and you redivide them to others, such as the EFF, kind of limits the ANC's ability to steal. 
also limits the alliance partners' ability to influence, and obviously also to co-steal. So the question, I suppose, would be, how would the alliance partners review consider that? Now, these type of things aren't really considered because in typical fashion, we see this quite a lot in the media. If Juju farts it, everybody tweets it. We saw this at Christmas time when Juju said David Mabuza will be president by the end of the year. It's March now, mate. And David Mabuza has resigned and he's no longer deputy president. In fact, the Republic at the moment has no deputy president. So, so much for Julius's prediction. And if you actually look at a lot of the predictions made by, by Juju, they all turn out to be brain farts, but the media doesn't treat them that way, does it? They run those arguments over and over and over again, and they keep repeating a narrative to the Republic and the people that follow them like typical sheep until those narratives almost seem very true and real to everybody else. I think I think that's kind of where I consider the situation to be at the moment. So, I mean, I, I tend to agree with you. A lot of the stuff that Julia says will happen doesn't happen uh, for the most part. But there is something to it in terms of, if you look at the machinations of the ANC, especially in terms of the national ANC and the ANC in Gauteng. So we well know, if you've been listening to us for a while, you know that the ANC in Gauteng is working closely with the EFF. That is showing up through the coalitions in Joburg, in Atwane, which they managed to steal this week, which was actually very well done, and soon at Kuruleni, but no one of importance lives there, so we don't really care about that. And how that semi-formal coalition is going either they're choosing a minority leader from Cope or Aljamar or whatever the case might be as the mayor of that municipality and metros and the ANT and the EFA fill up the MMC positions the executive positions to graft that's how it's working that is being done under the auspices of Panyaza Lusufi the premier of Gauteng but it's not being done because Cyril wants it this is being done outside of the intentions of the national ANC. So the National ANC seems to have a very sort of offish relationship with the EFF, whereas the ANC in Gauteng, generally because they were the youth league with Julius, so they're more friendly than otherwise. But basically, the ANC in Gauteng are quite friendly with Julius. So people are thinking to themselves, well, if they are friendly in Gauteng, what would it take for the ANC in the EFF to become friendly at a national level? And to them, and to me, it seems like Cyril doesn't need must be part of that equation. Cyril and Julius don't get along. Cyril fired Julius from the ANC originally, and uh, Julius does see him as a sellout to white capital, which is probably true to some extent. But if Cyril is gone, the impetus for Machatila to become president and to bring the EFF into the fold, according to the argument, is much higher than if Cyril remains president. Yeah, I think the argument can be higher, but I don't know if that makes it more likely. I think you're right. Obviously, we are seeing a ANC-EFF coalition in Ekuruleni and Swami and all the other Johannesburg shitholes. That's you have one of those shitholes, so sorry, mate. But at the end of the day, I think the thing that people tend to forget is there is a reason that the ANC and the EFF are partnering with those municipalities, and that is because the ANC doesn't have a majority of those municipalities and no one else will work with the ANC. We've seen, we've seen reports where other coalitions have been formed in other sides of the country, such as in Durban. And as we saw in Durban, like the, the minority leader that joined there as the deputy president resigned and basically said, I'm terribly sorry for ever joining the ANC. It was a huge mistake. And I think a lot of the small coalition partners, they aren't the conveniently created ones that are there to prop up the ANC. 
are finding that working with the ANC is a real struggle. Not because the ANC are hard people to work with, but can't actually work with them because they don't want to work. All they want to do is steal. And when you actually see the scope of the problems that are there and the work that's required to fix them, and all you see is the guy you're working with taking money out the till, becomes very untenable to kind of run those portfolios. Now, the ANC and the EFF don't have that problem because the ANC and the EFF share the same thieving tendencies. With that being said, as I said, the only reason that they're doing that is because the ANC doesn't have a majority in that in that area. Neither does the EFF. I mean, the EFF is only a 10% party, probably never be more than 10% party. But what will 2024 look like in Fauteng? Well, the current portfolios are showing, well, based on the current polls, that the ANC and the EFF even combined may only be at 40% in that municipality or in that province. So how much influence is the Gauteng province really going to have on the national debate? Yeah, it seems it seems rather marginal based on the polls that, that we have. Uh, ANC sitting at around 38% nationally. Uh, in 2019, or last local government election, they got under 50, if I remember correctly. In 2019, they got 52% in Gauteng. So the decline is swift, and the decline is swifter than it's uh, the rise of the ANC. So I, I tend to agree with you. I think at, even at a national level, it's difficult to say right now, but if the ANC does get 38% at national level, the EFF is not going to get over 10-11. still not enough to form a viable coalition. Maybe with the PA and with good, if it still exists by then, maybe. But it's going to be a very tenuous coalition. It's not It's not certain that this is going to be a coalition that will survive very long. Coalition politics is already rough. Now you want to open up the avenues to more grifting, to more players outside of the ANC. Oh, I'm not certain they can hold it together for very long if they do have a national coalition somehow. Okay, but let's say they do have a national coalition, right? Let's just assume that they have a national coalition of some variety. So the question would be, what could they actually achieve with that national coalition? I'm not actually sure a lot, because the problem is that you always have these two pragmatic forces. You have the EFF, who are very ultra-left, and they're very extreme, and you have the the ANC, which is left-wing, but tries to be kind of pragmatic in their approach. Like, you know, they're happy to see the degradation of society as long as they're kind of earning, but they don't want it to be too much so that, you know, their earning capacity is kind of limited. So, you know, they're, they're like a leech. They want to... They want to do a small amount of, of, of stealing and leeching so that they can stay on for as long as possible. Yeah. Whereas the EFF are like bloodletting. They'll cut it, drain it, and down it's like dead, okay? Well, the one wants so, the host to live, and the other one wants to kill the host. I, 100%. And I think 100%. And we saw this with expropriation without compensation. The EFF were like, nope, we're not voting for it unless you nationalize everything and we become uh, Mozambique 2.0, right? Where no one can own private property. Everything must belong to the state. And the ANC was like, no, 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 that's not actually what our people want. Um, actually, very true. That's not what they want. Um, and as a result, as I'm sure you you can appreciate, like the ANC said, well, our people actually want title Ds. They want to have some ownership. We understand the need to nationalize some stuff and to expropriate some stuff, but we can't sign off for this really radical type thing. And the EFF said, what if you can't do our most radical extreme form of something? We don't want anything. It's like an all or nothing with it with them, and, it, and it's always that way. So, how would they get anything passed in the national government? I mean, the EFF will constantly be proposing things that were absolutely in the world of 
bizarre. And the ANZ would constantly be saying, come on, guys, like you need to be more reasonable. And you can just see it's not it's not going to wash. It's not going to go. The other side that people aren't really thinking about, and we have mentioned it before, is the EFF voters do not want the EFF to partner with the ANC. Let's just be clear on that. The whole point of the EFF is that it's an alternative to the ANC. When they see them voting or partnering with the ANC, I'm not, I don't know how that's going to how that's going to fly down with the EFF voter. That's actually a very interesting point. Um, I haven't seen the data in quite a while, but I do remember that the average EFF voter does not like the ANC at all. They sort of want the EFF to be, well, alone, right? Like the radical thing, take over completely, become the people's dictatorship, and, and there you go. That's also quite a good point. But at the end of the day, right, we need to understand that any potential coalition between the ANC and the EFF is a coalition on graft and corruption. That only lasts so long. There's no underlying philosophy. There's no underlying ideology. They've got different interests. They've got different scales of time in terms of implementing policy. Even if they are together at a national level, it doesn't mean the end of South Africa at all. Like you could, you could easily kill them by the next election, should there be enough to, to suffice for that. Yeah, look, uh, you know, the, the problem that the EFF also doesn't really take into account is how entrenched the ANC is with certain parties. By certain parties, I mean, like, we often moan about this. Corporate South Africa doesn't do a lot against the ANC because it sees it as being, you know, a, a, an, almost an alliance partner. Remember that one of the, uh, the one of the parties in the social compact is, is business, you know, business which is basically the corporates out there, you know, the large corporates that that kind of prop up this government in the, in the hope that they can kind of also get their their favoritisms or their advantages. Corporate South Africa isn't going to be keen on the EFF because they know that the EFF are in the world are bizarre. And that in itself can kill off a high degree of support and legitimacy to the ANC government. Will the ANC government want that to occur? Because as we've said, even at the national level, look at a branch level, I'm sure they're all just completely retarded. But at a national level, there is a degree of, how shall we say, um, pragmatism that does go on there. Will they really want to see their, their taps shrunk, even by corporate South Africa, you know, the large corporates? Not what 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 we typically refer to as what monopoly capital, not the small business, not the medium enterprise, like the large corporates that are really vested in the state. Do they really want to see the EFF? I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, it depends how much gold the corporate South Africa has. Uh, so far, we've seen they have none whatsoever. Maybe they will grow if there's a, a distinct danger. Because there's nothing, nothing, you know, signifies action like urgency, right? And, and corporate South Africa, for the most part, has not understood how the ANC works and not understood the urgency around acting or, you know, throttling the the thieving bastards. Maybe they will in time to come. How much power they have, essentially, I don't really know. But, I mean, a tax revolt is more likely with the EFF in power than the EFF out of power. But that's on one side of the equation. And we've been mocked for this a lot. The other side of the equation is there could be a coalition where some good guys are there, Right. Maybe ANC, DA, and IFP, as an example. Some people have bandied about the idea that the ANC and IFP coalition is the best scenario. I just don't know how that's going to work in any meaningful way, or why that that combination is is good. 
an ANCDA one is our preferred one and the one that is, people say, least likely to happen. But if Cyril stays and has staying power and manages to stave off internal fractions of the ANC, it could be the most likeliest one. I don't know if that's the case. I mean, obviously, one of the problems with the ANC-IFP is that traditionally, as I'm sure you can recall, the ANC and the IFP have been shooting at each other and killing each other for decades. So there is a significant amount of bad blood between the ANC and the IFP from a war front. But that being said, you can't find any municipalities where the ANC and the IFP are partnered in in a good, solid way that's actually worked. There aren't any examples of that. So if we took that as a working model that could be tried and tested, it doesn't happen. I think the ANC and the DA have worked in opposition to each other for a very long time because obviously the DA has been the official opposition for some time. So the ANC is used to being criticized with the DA and having to sit down in council meetings and talk with them and discuss with them. I think they're used to that relationship. But when you have to swap over from the left bench to the right bench, you have to sit with your your enemies, so per se, that's a big cultural mind shift. And I'm not sure that they feel that they could do it purely from a practical point of view. So whilst it may be the best opportunity for the country, I don't know what the potential likelihood in reality from the practical basis, what it would actually look like. Because I don't think there's enough of an appetite in the ANC to disrupt their existing paradigms to allow that to occur. I also think that some of the alliance partners would get their feathers in a ruffle and probably not really like that potential scenario because, again, they've never really had to work with the DA. And so how would that actually look like in practicalities? I don't think they, I don't think they can fathom that. So the only way for that to occur would be, well, to break up the alliance, wouldn't it? It would be for the ANC to kind of have pragmatic streak, this reformer president, which we all promised with Ramaphoria, he would come out there, he'd break up the alliance, he'd partner with the DA, and we'd almost get the pseudo-liberal kind of government. And there's a large part that says, well, that's wishful thinking and complete bullshit. Because, as Ross Kinnear pointed out the other day when we interviewed him, Cyril is the most radical president we've ever had. Jacob Zuma did not push expropriation without compensation. He didn't agree with it. He didn't push the NHR. He didn't push putting away people's firearms and banning self-defense. He didn't push a reform of the trespass laws. He didn't reform any of this. He didn't preside over COVID state of disasters. He didn't preside over complete ineptness. Jacob Zuma was famous for having changed his cabinet at Natam because he had a terrible, bad case of tea. And he just decided that's what he wanted to do. I mean, if you look at the radicalism that we have seen in the ANC, it's actually been in Cyril's cabinet. And we discussed this before we recorded. Cyril has the most amount of commies appointed to a cabinet than any president of the past ever has. He's arguably more in the pockets of China and Russia and the commie logic and the SACP than any president of the past has. So the argument is, 
I'm not sure that Cyril is a great reformer. I actually think he's the great Mao in sheep's clothing. I think he comes through as like, oh, look at me, I'm credible. But if you look at why South Africa has severe decay since the arrival of Cyril, that's because the Marxist doctrine has got worse. We are facing things like the Equity Amendment Act, which will allow them to basically do quotas wherever they want. We, we've we got mass sales of the government getting more involved in everything. You look at most of the proposed laws, like a lot of the proposed laws are becoming more extreme. Jacob Zuma didn't push these laws. He didn't push these reforms. Cyril did. Yeah. And as Fran said, uh, and if you want to listen to the podcast, it is in in this feed. Um, as Fran said, like a lot of people might think that the anti is going to become more populist come twenty twenty four, but the opposite has has been true. They were very populist after twenty nineteen. It's more more like twenty eighteen when Cyril came into power. He immediately put EWC on the table. He immediately put the NHI on the table. He immediately went like full lockdown mode for COVID, and thought that you know we can have five hundred billion rand to save the economy. Like all those things have bit him in the arse now. And the support for the ANC, thanks to populism, has declined dramatically, right? From 57% in 2019, we're looking at like 40% for 2024. That's a massive decline. That, that's a huge decline, a, a tremendous decline. So the populist era of the ANC and the Cyril, it appears to be over. But that's just for Cyril. So people might be thinking to themselves, well, if they get rid of Cyril, Will there be another resurgence in populism, left-wing populism, if the EFF get into the halls of power? I would say yes, that likely is the case. But what is the political appetite from the ground, from the citizens, from the voters in terms of it? I think it's far less, it's going to be far less in 2024 than it was in 2017. Remember, in 2017, we had all like academics saying how great EWC is, we had Everyone saying how great all this stuff is, and it took a, a, a long, hard battle to get that off the table. <clears throat> Whereas in 2024, I doubt there would be any form of, uh, what's, what's the word, a, any form of confidence in the ability of that government to be populist in the same way. So there's a variety, basically what you're trying to say, there's a variety of factors that are taking place. None of them are certain. But even if the so-called worst-case scenario happens, it's not inevitable that it is the worst-case scenario. Yeah, I, I think I think it's a it's a it's a difficult position because I think to a large degree Cyril has been populist. He's been populist since the day he got there. He's risen on his populism based on the vote because everybody had a degree of Ramaphoria. They all said, "Ah, you'll you'll do everything. You'll be the great savior of the country." And there was a high degree of like, should we say, confidence in the resurgence of of whatever he came out with. You know. Possibly he would resolve a lot of the problems that, that the country was tending to face. And there was a lot of, should we say, bravado around it. There was a lot of pushing of it and, and people being very confident with what, what he was doing. I think he's done it because it's what he's wanted to do. And he felt that possibly it was even what he wanted Jacob Zuma to do. But Jacob Zuma obviously lost a high degree of his popularity. Having now done it with record popularity in the heart of when he did it. I can't help but feel that he feels like, oh, it didn't work, and oh, what a disappointment. 
the logical answer would be for him to change tack and do something else. Yeah. I don't think he has an appetite to do that. Tell me if you think I'm wrong. I don't think he has the appetite to do that. I think what he actually wants to do is go, try to do work, guys. Can I, can I go sit on my yacht now, please? Because I've got some money and there's some Ibiza babes there. They look pretty hot. Slow shitting stuff and unemployment. And, oh. Yeah, I don't really want to do that. And you, you get a sense of that even when he talked at the State of the Nation. Like he was, he was a man that was deflated. He, you could see the look in his eyes. He was like, why the hell am I here? And then he even said it at, some, at the end of the speech, didn't he? He said, many of you may be asking, why am I still here? And we all kind of popped up and looked at him. We're like, yeah, why are you still here? But I don't think that question was aimed at the audience. I think that question was aimed at himself. Yeah, probably. And then in, in response to his own question, he said, no, because my dad said you have a, a, a duty till the end of the earth to do X, Y, Z. Uh, the, the problem is he, he lacks the, the political capital and he lacks the, the, the leadership, the authority to do anything. So he sort of, Julius came out this week. He had a long, hour-long interview on something. I can't remember. And he said, guys, we need to understand. Cyril resigned in November. Right, like he resigned. The body's there, but the mind's gone. The resignation is the mindset of Cyril. So he's just there as a body bag, as a body double. He's not there in spirit. And I think Judas is clearly correct in that regard. And we made many videos about how the ANC has given up on governing. Which makes me believe, if the ANC has given up on governing, do they want to be bullied by the EFF? Or do they want the DA by stealth to govern the country while they still hang on to their privileges and perks and, and graft? I don't, I don't know. Is it possible to, to answer that? But psychologically, it makes more sense for them just to hang on and let the DA run the country by stealth. Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a difficult one, isn't it? I, I, don't, I don't have an answer to that. You know, but I suppose at the, at the same time, the question would become, if they aligned with the DA, would the DA sit by and watch them steal? The answer is probably no. Would the EFF sit by and watch them steal? Probably. Probably yes. I mean, the EFF would have their hands in until two. So, don't know. It's a tough one, isn't it? Because it's like, it it, it really depends. I mean, the, the greatest irony is, and you know, Cyril's never going to do this because he's a man who lacks conviction. But had he come in or even were he to change tack now and become like the ruthless Putin of South Africa, you could just tell everybody what to do. I can do this or I'm going to bitch slap you till the million years. But he can't. He seems to want to do everything via committee. He seems to want to do everything via, you know, consensus. And the greatest irony is one of his role models is Putin, but the other one is actually Xi in China. And neither of them rule like this, mate. Like, neither of them rule by consensus. You do what they say, or you go to the gulag. Finished. And they get on quite fine. And so he looks at their, should we say, political ideology, although it is arguable that Russia is not communist anymore. So why he still thinks it's a communist state, don't know. But anyway, it's it's arguable that even he looks at, say, China's unique blend of communism and go, well, it works there. Why wouldn't it work here? And the answer is, because regardless of what you think about Xi, he does actually have a deep love of his people and his country. He does. Okay, yes, he wants to do all the usual commie bullshit, which is control everybody and you must do what I say and all the other bullshit. But he does still have a deep love for China. A lot of commies in the past didn't have a deep love of their country. They actually had a deep 
love of the country's resources and their money is a big difference. And I think Xi isn't that concerned by the money, but he is concerned about the Chinese strength, wealth, health. He is concerned by those things, and you can see it in some of the policies it comes out of, which is in complete contrast to the ANZ. The ANZ thinks it embarks the same body, but it doesn't have the same love for South Africa. It's only got, a, like the commie bastards in the past, it's only got a deep love of the resources that the country has. Like, how do I make mm-hmm. myself live a nicer life? Like, how do I get a nicer car? Like, I want some champagne. Like, they don't care, actually, about South Africans. Otherwise, we wouldn't be in the situation, would they? Yeah, I mean... The, and the big, the big that, the, Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to conclude and say Cyril lacks the conviction that Xi or Putin has. Like, when they do something, they say, do it, and it's done. The end. Cyril doesn't have that. No, but I think that... They, they, I think uh, all the political parties in South Africa lack nationalism. And that's the fundamental problem, right? Like, like the DA are not nationalistic. They, there's not a liberal value. The EFF are pan-African, so every black person, irrespective of where they come from, belongs in South Africa. The ANC are just grifters, so they just care about themselves. There's no political party out there that's nationalist in terms of wanting South Africa and South Africans to thrive. I mean, I think the DA wants it on some superficial legal level, but not at a not as a deep ideological level. Excuse me. <clears throat> the only party maybe that, that might um, have that sort of nationalist streak is Action USA and the Freedom Front Plus. The Freedom Front Plus more than Action USA, but the Action USA messaging, but the Action USA messaging is not very strong on that. Not like there's no vision for South Africa post the ANC with these political parties. And that's one of the major flaws. And it's a major flaw because no one truly thinks these people are acting on behalf of South Africans. I completely agree. And, I, you know, Action SA arguably is the most nationalistic party out there. But where are the great orators? Like, where are the great speakers, the speechwriters, the, the guy who can stand up and give a a FIRA-level kind of speech in South Africa? Well, the answer is, we have one called Juju, and he's a complete nut job on the left wing. I mean, what a what a shame. I mean, if that guy was a right-winger we'd, and a nationalist, like, we could sort, but he's not. I mean, Marxism just pollutes the brain. Yeah. But the, the reality with the Action SA specifically is it might have the ideology, but it fails to communicate it. None of them are great communicators, None of them are great orientators. So it's, it's a real shame. I, I like the fact that you talk about oratory and then you say orientators. <laughs> That's another Byronism. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that communication because I, I saw a video from the president of El Salvador who's got a 98% approval rating in a democracy, which is unheard of. And uh, he's the same man, if people have been watching our videos, who's reduced crime in El Salvador by like close to 90%. And he did that by having a state of emergency to basically imprisoned 66,000 gang members and he had a speech in front of the police um, with thousands of police officers were in attendance and he spoke about like their God-given duties and rights and values of El Salvador like what it means to be a cop what the values are in terms of loyalty and patriotism and um, sacrifice to save the nation of El Salvador and the guy it was like it was like Peter Thiel mixed with Jordan Peterson mixed with like Nazi propaganda. Like, it was such a well-done video, and we need to accept that the Nazis did propaganda very well. But anyway, 
we don't have that type of person in South Africa. Not as a leader, not as a, a politician, not as even a tribal leader, unfortunately. We've we got very boring people here. And as you said, the only one worthy of noticing is Julius Malema, but he's a hardcore commie. I still think he has a chance to become a right-wing populist, but you need to beat that commie out of him. And I don't know if that is quite possible, but it's a real shame that it's being wasted. That's the problem with communism. Like It wastes people's abilities to think correctly and all their talents therefore are wasted on on that nonsense it's a real shame yeah but i also think it's very interesting to watch the presidents of el salvador so for those of you who don't really know why this is important is because el salvador was considered to be the most dangerous place in south america their crime rates rivaled south africa's and it was all due to gangs most dangerous place in the world there you go. And it's it was all due to gang violence. Which, if you look at South Africa, a lot of our violence is due to gang violence. So what became very interesting about this is that if you take the Western narrative, there's a lot of Western narrative around imprisonments in terms of violent crimes, and they say, well, prison doesn't doesn't help, and neither does the threat of, of execution, or the death penalty doesn't help reduce crime rates. And said individual in El Salvador was like, doesn't agree. And he's been classed as a dictator for this. So what he's done is he's gone back to his, actually had a return to tradition. Imprison these people, chuck them in prisons, don't give them nice stays, make them live through some pretty horrible stuff, and they'll stop being criminals. And lo and behold, it's exactly what's happened. It's interesting also that what he didn't feel the need to do was to say, well, we've got a lot of grand gang violence here, a lot of people shooting, so you know what we should do? Let's take away people's rights to self-defense. Let's take away their own personal firearms. He was like, no, gangs need to be tackled directly. And this is how we do it. And we don't have anybody in South Africa who does this. In fact, Ronald Lamorna within the last couple of days said, as a direct response almost to this guy, he said, well, death penalties and incarceration doesn't deter crime. So he, they're not going down that route. He's like, well, El Salvador shows that it does. But commies are always wedded to crime because crime destabilizes the state, which allows the commies to do whatever they want. So, yeah, and, and what El Salvador proves is that the only thing that changes a country fundamentally quickly is political will, right? Is the will of the people who have the power to actually effect the change that is required. If Sarah Raposa came into power in 2017, immediately imprisoned a half of the ANC, right? And said to the other half, if you don't follow me, you'll follow, you'll follow them in prison, motherfuckers. If he did that, this country would be a fundamentally different country. Fundamentally different. But he didn't. He didn't take the opportunity when he had all of the political will at his disposal. And that's weakness. And that's a, 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 a leader without a vision. As Lee Kuan Yew, the, the former ruler of Singapore, once said, he doesn't base any of his policies based on public perception or polling. Because he's not there to determine what's best by people who are not in power. He's there to determine what's best for the country based on the power that he has. In South Africa, we don't have that. We're too wedded to this idea of democracy and the constitution and all that sort of nonsense. And it retards progress. It retards reformation in the proper sense of the term but but i but i I always actually disagree with you on that because 
I think that we are wedded to the idea of democracy in South Africa, but we're wedded to a stupid idea of democracy. The, there are two sides of it. You could say democracy is nothing more than majority rule. In other words, the majority of people gave you the powers, therefore you can do whatever you want. Right? That's one way to look at it. The other way or an older way to look at democracy would be to choose the side of government that you wish to promote certain things. Do I want the left wing to promote things? In other words, the social good, the welfare state, the government to be slightly more in control. Do I want the right wing state, which is less kind of more private enterprise, more individual freedom? This is another way to look at democracy. Which side do I want controlling things? And I think that paradigm of either we have the left promoting things or the right promoting things kind of got destroyed in the Blair era when everything became central pragmatism. Everything was central, central. Even the ANC considers itself a centralist. Like, so which side of government is really is running things? Do we want state to the individual? Like, we don't get to vote on that. As a result, democracy has been boiled down to nothing more than majority rule. So as long as I had the majority of people, I can do whatever I want. Like, who cares, right? And that's actually where the problem comes in because these people aren't there to promote a specific kind of way of thinking or a way of lifestyle. They're just there because they're like, they got the majority of the votes, you know? And like, who cares, okay? Like, so the idea that you have these leaders that actually have ideas and actual things that they want to achieve I don't really think we see that anymore. The fact of the matter is what we have is we have majorityism. And by having this majorityism, whatever that might be, it's kind of like, well, I need to keep my majority. So therefore I need to keep consensus and keep everybody in the majority happy. Clearly, I mean, obviously, I, I want to maintain my majorityism. Surely, how else would I do it? Right? I mean, it kind of makes sense. But you don't see that in countries like Hungary or El Salvador or even places like Florida. There you still have the old paradigm of which which party is controlling it, the left or the right. And what we're seeing is that instances where the rights gain control and pursue proper rights-type ideas, we do see improvements in the life of the individuals. We see this in Hungary, we see it in Florida, we see it down in El Salvador. We don't have that clear delineation of sides we seem to have the far left with the EFF the medium left with the ANC or the kind of left of censor-ish with the DA so as a result is it is it a surprise that no one really comes in and pushes through an actual agenda I would argue not I would argue this is the inevitable the inevitabilism of majoritism well, I think it's actually far simpler than that, is that a lot of these parties see themselves as just continuing on the bureaucracy of the state, right? The policies are sort of important, but they're not there to leave a lasting, pragmatic outcome of that particular state. When this guy came in, he was a, for El Salvador I'm talking about, he has a, a deep love of El Salvador and the people of El Salvador which voted him in. So his mandate was to have the best interests of those people who voted him in at heart and pursue things that make their lives better. In South Africa, we think a better life means having a social grant, right? Or like 
becoming a, a slave of the state in some in some sort of sense. It's not a case of leaving an indelible nationalist mark on the psyche of the people to signify that I am going to do X, Y, Z, and I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure it happens, even if it means infringing some of your rights in the short term. We're happy to infringe rights when it sees the government, but not when it sees the people. Like, for example, instead of... This is, this, is this is exactly what I'm talking about, Ramon. Like, I want you to think of it slightly differently. We push majoritism. Okay, so the majority of people, as we know, are unemployed, give them grants. But then we also try to promote, like, private enterprise businesses. Ah, oh, well, you know, we're going to free up the states and, you know, do some regulation. And then we've got some people that want to go out there and, like, expropriate everything before I left. Oh, let's do, a, let's do some uh, EWC or something. We'll, 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 we'll appease them. This is majoritism. They're trying to appease everybody. But in the process of appeasing things, they're trying to push competing rights. They're trying to push competing agendas. That doesn't exist in those countries. They're not pushing competing agendas. There is just that agenda. And that's what they push. Yeah, because they're nationalists. That's why, because they have a deep love for the people, or the, or their country, or their their state of Florida. DeSantis is doing things because it makes him popular, but he does things because he actually truly believes in them. Whereas here, we don't actually know what people believe, the, the politicians. That is, you know, for the most part, the, we, the only thing we know for certain is that they re- truly believe in themselves, and that's you know the the Oprah moment of South Africa. It's like the self confidence thing that we forced onto kids so you could be whatever the hell you want to be like that's this is the inevitable conclusion whereas history is decided by men doing stuff at all costs and we can see that in hungary we can see that in china we can see it in russia we can see it in el salvador but it's not going to change yeah we we don't have a sort of nationalist streak they're, they're trying to do so in terms of like operation to do and things like that but it's a very base level nationalism it's not theoretically sound in other words it seems like they're making it up as they go along and are quite willing to scapegoat a lot of people along the way irrespective of the outcomes of that scapegoating but if you if you consider even the the situation with operation Dadula, right i mean lux didn't wasn't part of operation Dadula. he was part of the suesto parliament and suesto parliament had a mandate with operation Dadula, which he fulfilled but if you actually watch lux even fulfilling that mandate of Operation Dadula in partnership with the Sowetan partnership, with the Sowetan parliament. The logic of what he was doing wasn't coherent. Sometimes he was kind of like pushing what you could describe as a deeply nationalist type idea. Sometimes it was a deeply Marxist idea. And you, what you find is that these individuals, they, they may be charismatic, they may be very, very good, but they lack ideological coherency. They're not just nationalist and that's what they're going to pursue they still they have a degree of nationalism because there is a degree of populism in the nationalism but when the populism no longer suits nationalism they just drop it and then they're onto something else and you can see that even now with 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 Lux. and that's a constant problem now in, in politics there is no coherence in what it is that they're trying to achieve and i blame on that majorityism i just think that it's people just trying to get the majority kind of consensus, which is what we see with Cyril, right? Like, he just wants a consensus. Yeah, well, there's just a lack of, of sort of understanding about... Yeah, there's just a lack of understanding about what people actually want to achieve. I mean, if I was president of South Africa, I would say, I want people to be safe, I want people to have jobs, and I want uh, people to be weed or social grants. Those are the three things. 
I mean, the load shedding all that's not even going to be a problem. I'm going to be like, fuck SCOM, we're going to close it down and, you know, whoever can come in and give power can give him power. Like, those are very simple things to, to sort out. But if I have three mandates, if I have one mandate to make life better for South Africa, I'll focus on crime, I'll focus on job creation, and I'll focus on the economy, stupid. Then it's not difficult to understand what to do, right? But for Cyril, what is his mandate? It's like, oh, to carry on with ANC bullshit, right? What's, what, to unite the ANC. Yeah, to unite the ANC. That's going so well now, isn't it? What's the DA's mandate? Oh, to have a sort of market economy and non cool. Like, just tell us what you're going to do for South Africa in terms of making our lives better. They can't answer that question. They, they, they speak in theoretic, theoretics all the time. What is the mandate of the EFF? Oh, it's to kick white people into the sea and then make this a Zimbabwean utopia 2.0. Cool. I think they could actually maybe do that if they really wanted to do it. But there's no sense of leadership in a historical perspective that leaves an indelible mark on the nation state. None of it from any part at all. Which is a but we don't big shame. As leaders. No. Which is a which is a big shame. Which is a big shame. So I don't know. We'll see. I don't know if there's a sort of conclusion to this podcast that we wish to make in any measurable way quite a rambling one hopefully if you listen to this all the way here thank you um any sort of final thoughts from you baron no i just think that you can see you can see the lack of any form of desire to improve the the quality of the lifestyle of the individuals of the state even from the government today i mean obviously we've even heard that everybody acknowledges the one fundamental thing that would improve the lifestyles of everybody immediately would be the restoration of the electricity grid They've said, well, the way that you could do that is by this refire up some of the coal power stations, but they will emit more. And you'd think that they've got to set a disaster, right? So they could allow it. But now the environmental agency, the Minister for Environment, the ANC Minister for the Environment, has come out and said, nah, we're not we're not relaxing those rules. So you need to work within the con- constraints of what you are. So we have a solution to fix it, which would improve the quality of life for all South Africans, but they don't want to adopt it. Because in adopt, they would have to basically forego some of their commie bullshit and would actually have to improve the quality of life for the individuals of the state. It is obvious that that's not what they want to do. We don't have a government that wants to improve the quality of the life for the people. We just have a government that wants to steal for itself and then try adopt the middle road to keep as many people happy to get them back in power. Pretty much it. You know, and it's... We don't actually have any leaders that would say, like, you know what? Fuck the environmental rules. Let's just let's just burn everything and get the power grid back on. Let's let's kill all these stupid power stations and we'll privatize. Let's kill all the unions and we'll privatize. Like there's nothing like that. Man. There's no, no one talking like that. No, no and it's... yeah. Sorry, just just on, on a concluding note on, on my side, Vitz is protesting. The students are protesting once again, and they do what they do best. They just burn down everything and throw rubbish around. And on Twitter, I said, you know, what stops this is political will. And then someone actually made a good point. It's like, well, Ramon, there is political will. 400,000 arrests during lockdowns. That shows political will. The lockdown itself shows political will. They are able to do it if they wanted to do it. But what they actually want is the chaos. What they want is the decay. That's what they want. So the political will is there, but not for the right reasons, in other words. And that's essentially what South Africa is. I agree. I agree. Anyway, thanks for listening, everyone. 
uh, next week will be much more cheerful. <laughs> Have a good one. Speak then. Cheers.